0: Psalms chapter number 30 tonight. I'd like to preach for you for a few moments out of this psalm and hope that the Lord will use it to be a blessing in your heart. I know that He blessed me as I read it. Beginning in verse number 1, the Word of God says, I will extol Thee, O Lord, for Thou hast lifted me up and hast not made my foes to rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried unto Thee, and Thou hast healed me. O Lord, Thou hast brought up my soul from the grave Thou hast kept me alive, that I should not go down to the pit. Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of His, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness. For His anger endureth but a moment. In His favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by Thy favor Thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. Thou didst hide Thy face. And I was troubled. I cried to Thee, O Lord, and unto the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Shall the dust praise Thee? Shall it declare Thy truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy upon me. Lord, be Thou my helper. Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to Thee, and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks unto Thee forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we do praise You and thank You for all of the Word of God, but Lord, especially for this passage You've laid before our eyes this evening. Help us to share in the heartfelt praise that the psalmist offered for You. And help us, Lord, for His words to be made our words. Father, that our heart might express the same thing in thankfulness and gratitude to You that the psalmist expressed. Lord, I pray that You would do in us that which would bring You glory. For Lord, that's why we exist, is to bring You glory. And Father, we'll be sure to thank You for it. Lord, touch each heart according to Thy will. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. The context of Psalms chapter 30 is given to us in the little uh, heading just below in my Bible. I guess it's in your Bible. I hope it is. Just below where it says Psalms 30, it says, A psalm and song at the dedication of the house of David. David has uh, now become king. He has been anointed for some time, but now he has ascended the throne. And as he views what God has done for him, he sits down and pins this psalm of praise to the Lord. And I want to preach to you for a few moments on this thought, the goodness of God in David's life and in mine. You know, as I read this passage of Scripture, I know that David is talking about some very specific things things. I, I understand that he is very descriptively giving us some truths of some things that God has done in his life. I'm sure when David talks about foes, he's talking about armies and he's talking about kings. He's talking about bears and lions and giants. But when I look at my life, I think I can say along with David that thou hast not made my foes to rejoice over me. I understand that when David is talking about the Lord bringing up his soul from the grave, Very likely David is talking about times when his life was in peril, times when his life hung on a razor's edge and he could have been snuffed out in a moment. And I understand the dramatic nature of what David is saying. But as I read this psalm, I can't help but think of times when the Lord brought my soul from the grave. When I read in this passage about how the Lord made His mountain to stand strong, I can't help but think of times that the Lord has given me strength. When I read in this passage about how the Lord has been his helper and has turned his mourning into dancing, I can't help but think of times when the Lord has been the lifter up of my head. And I see the goodness of God in David's life in this passage, but I also see the goodness of God in my life in this passage. And I just want to, I almost didn't even jot down an outline, because what I want to do is just walk through this passage with you tonight. I hope that's okay. And look at some of the things that David said. But I did jot down a little structure that might help you keep things organized. The first thing that we see in this passage, in the first three verses, as David begins this psalm, is the communication of God's goodness. Or could I say it this way? Here we see David rehearsing the goodness of God. He's not talking about what God has done for Israel. He's not talking about what God is going to do for the world. He's not talking about what God is going to do for those that are poor and needy that He does not know. When He begins this psalm, He begins by talking about what God has done in His life. Let me tell you something. If you ever need a place to start praising Him, start praising Him where He did something in your life. if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got something to praise Him about. The Bible says, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. And we ought to thank God that we know why we praise the Lord. Uh, we're not just like the trees or the rocks that might sing out praise or the stars from heaven that might give their celestial song in praise to their Creator, because we don't just know Him uh, as a Creator and creation, but we know Him as our Father and we're His child. He's our shepherd, and we're the sheep of His pasture, and we have a personal relationship with Him, and we've got nothing to praise Him over. That's a good starting point to praising the Lord. And so David begins by saying he's going to extol the Lord. He says, I will extol Thee, O Lord. Why? For Thou hast lifted me up. Now, it can't be lost on any of us how spiritual of a truth can be applied here, because you and I, we were in that same condition when we were lost. We were downtrodden. Hey, listen, we weren't just low. We were going lower by the second. I mean, we weren't just in bad shape. We were getting worse every time we turned around. And you say, oh, but preacher, I got saved at a young age. Hey, I got saved at a young age. I was ten years old when I got saved. And guess what? Things was only going to get worse. Even as a ten-year-old boy, if I had died in that moment, I would have died and went to hell. But my life was only going to continue to get worse until He lifted me up. He says this, thou hast not made my foes... To rejoice over me. Now, let me say this, that there's been some times when folks was able to gloat over me. I'm just being honest with you. There have been some times in my life where I've made mistakes, where I've been wrong, where people have looked at me and pointed an accusing finger, and they were right in what they did because I was wrong. There's been times when people have gotten the best of me. Can somebody say amen? That ever been you? there have been something happened in your life and it seemed like you got no justice and it seemed like nothing ever got set right. I could tell you right now about people that are fighting battles. They should never have to fight over things that were not in any way their fault and that they very likely could possibly lose. And yet David said, thou hast not made my foes to rejoice over me. We could even go to times in David's life where people got the best of him. But you know what David understood no matter what else was happening, God had anointed him for the throne. And at the end of the day, the will of God would be exercised and he would sit upon that throne. That's what he's talking about, isn't it? The house of David has been dedicated. His coronation day has finally come. For years he has battled Saul. For years he has battled the Philistines. For years he has battled any and everybody that would seek to keep the will of God from being established in his life. And here he is with all the scars, with all of the heartache, with all of the trouble. He's sitting on the throne and the crown's on his head. And he says, at last God has triumphed in my life. You know that at the end of the day, there may be a lot of battles that we lose, but the war has already been won. There may be a lot of things that don't go our way, but let me tell you something. You turn to the back of the book and you find out that when it's all said and done, things do go our way. As Christians, we feel like we're always being assaulted. And, I, and I don't, listen, I don't think that's just a martyrdom complex either. Let me tell you something. As Christians, we are targeted in this country. We always have been in this world, but now, especially even in this country, we're being targeted. Let me tell you something. When you stand up for the name of Christ, you lose all your rights in our society. You don't have the right to be offended by anything anymore. You don't have the right to claim that someone has done you wrong. You don't have the right. When you say you're a Christian, then that means in this society's eyes that it's your, everything's your fault and you ought to just sit down and be quiet and not make a sound about anything and take all the blame and let your rights be took from you. We live in a time where it feels like our foes are rejoicing over us. But can I remind you that the God of this world, His death sentence has been issued His end has been determined. He's waiting to be abolished. He's waiting to be vanquished. He may have a little power in this world as it stands, but the battle's already been decided. The war has already been won. His death nail was launched at Calvary. His death sentence was signed, paid in full through Calvary's blood. And let me just remind you that at the end of the day, though we may lose some battles, though we may face discouragement, though we may walk through darkness... The war has already been decided. And our great foe, and you know who our great foe is, we have an adversary that walketh about as a roaring lion. He's already been defeated. He says, Thou hast not made my foes to rejoice over me. He says, O Lord my God, I cried unto thee, and thou hast healed me. Now you say, Preacher, the Lord's never healed me. Well, if you're saved, he has. Now, there's lots of folks in this room that testify to bodily healing from the Lord. I believe in bodily healing from the Lord. I believe when it's the Lord's will, He's capable of healing people. And you say, well, I'm skeptical. Well, let's just take a trip sometime. We'll go to some folks' houses and hear what the Lord did for them. We'll go through a testimony service sometimes and hear some things that God has done. Let me tell you something. There's people in this very room that could give you stories that would just abolish all that skepticism in a heartbeat if you'd really believe them, that the Lord can heal. But you say, Preacher, I've never faced anything like that, and I've never seen God do that. Well, if you've been saved, if you've been born again, you did get healed because you were sin sick, just like I was sin sick. And that sickness was terminal and chronic. And there was nothing, it was incurable. There was nothing we could do to fix that problem. You look at society today, and you'll look at a broken world. A world in which it doesn't matter how much money, how much psychology, how much science, how much goodwill they seek to throw at man's depravity, it just bounces right back in their face. They can spend millions and billions and trillions of dollars trying to buy off people's sin consciousness, but it won't change the fact that we're sinners. And nothing can fix that but the blood of Jesus Christ. And so if you're saved, He healed you of that sin sickness. You say, but preacher, I still sin. Yeah, I still sin too. And we always will. But one day, this vile body will be made like unto His glorious body. When that day comes, you see, at Calvary, you got saved from the punishment of sin. Through His cross, you got saved through the punishment of sin. Through your cross, you'll get saved from the power of sin in your life as you die to self and die to sin and surrender to Him. And guess what? Through His crown and His coming, we'll be saved through the presence of sin. One of these days, we'll no longer suffer with it anymore. He says in verse 3, O Lord, Thou hast brought up my soul from the grave. Now, that's interesting what he says there because the next phrase He says, thou hast kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Now, think about what David's saying. First, he says, Lord, you've brought me up. And then he says, Lord, you've kept me from going down. Now, what is he saying here? He's saying, if you hadn't intervened, I would have gone down into that pit. And because you intervened, Lord, it's like you pulled me up out of that pit. You know, what he's saying is this. In a moment, my life could have been gone. I would have been in the grave. I've heard a lot of folks fuss and argue about the, the Old Testament word sheol. Anybody that once seemed like they're some kind of scholar, they want to start talking to you about, about the Greek word Hades and the Hebrew word sheol. and all that. And they say, well, sheol in the Bible refers to the grave. Well, let me tell you something. For the lost individual, the grave and hell are one and the same. And so there's no sense in fussing and arguing about it. David saying, Lord, if you hadn't came into my life, I would have gone down into the grave. I would have gone into the pit. You know what he recognizes? He recognizes that at any moment he could have died. But God didn't let him die. You know what that is? That's mercy. Mercy and grace go hand in hand. You understand that? Uh, it, were it not for the grace of God, then the mercy of God could never be bestowed. And were it not for the mercy of God, then the grace of God could never be experienced. It's not enough simply that Christ died for our sins. We had to have the opportunity to choose to accept Him. If that choice is removed from the equation, then why isn't everybody saved? The truth of the matter is this. Christ died for your sins. That sin debt is paid, but if you don't accept Him, if you reject Him, then you'll die and go to hell. And the very fact that you even had mind enough, the very fact that there was a preacher, the very fact that the Gospel was given, the very fact that someone could show you the way is the mercy of God. And if you look back over your life, I'm sure you can think of a lot of times before you came to know the Lord that your life could have been snuffed out, your light could have been blown out, you could have in a moment died and woke up in the devil's hell But God showed mercy on you in giving you an opportunity to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see the communication of God's goodness. In the next few verses, David begins to talk about the comfort of God's goodness. Or could I say it this way? In the first three verses, we see him rehearsing the goodness of God. And in the next two verses, we see him speaking about the remembrance of the goodness of God. In other words, he gives some advice to those that are around him. Now, you imagine, you know, sometimes when I read the Psalms, I always imagine them as very personal and private. And some of the psalms are very personal and private. No doubt there's some of the psalms that until God uncovered them in some miraculous way, the nation of Israel may have not even known about them. I I don't know, but it seems as though there's some psalms that you read that are not necessarily written for public worship. I understand a psalm was written for worship, not all of them for public worship. But there's no question that this psalm that was sung on the day that He was coronated on the day that His throne was established, no doubt He sang it in front of people. And he says this in verse four Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Well, that's interesting that he says remembrance, isn't it? We don't talk about remembering something that is very evident in front of us, am I right? you're driving down the road, and let's say, I don't know, I'm just going to throw some. Let's say you're driving down the road, and you you and your husband, uh, unless you're a man, then I hope you don't have a husband. But <laughs> let's say you're driving down the road, ladies, and your husband, you pass by a bass boat or something like that. There's a number out there. Maybe it's a truck that he's wanting to buy or something like that. And there's a, there's a number that's written on the sign. You might look at the your spouse and say, Honey, did you remember that number? We don't talk about remembering things that are right in front of us. If the number was on a sign right on your windshield, you wouldn't have to ask about it. Am I right? We talk about remembering things that are not readily apparent. And it seems as though maybe David is giving a word of encouragement for those times in our life when the holiness of God is not quite apparent. You say, preacher, when could there be times when the holiness of God is not quite apparent? Well, can I give you an example? In Psalms chapter number 2, is a time when the holiness of God is not readily apparent. Because the psalmist says this. In fact, I'm going to turn back and read it. It's just a few pages back in my Bible. In Psalms 2, the psalmist says this. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. The psalmist is saying this, the heathen seem to be in control. Unbound and unfettered in their expression of hatred towards God, they are raging against Him. He goes on to say that he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. But on the earth, it doesn't appear that way. We could go on through the Psalms, and we're not going to take time to do it, but you could go on through the Psalms and find times when it seems as though the wicked are prevailing and the righteous are suffering. And that's times when the holiness of God is not very apparent in this world. The saint would be tempted to think this, if God's so holy, why does He allow the things that He allow? David says in those times when the goodness of God Doesn't seem to be quite so evident. Those are times when we have to remember just who God is. He says in verse number five, For his anger endureth but a moment, in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. The psalmist says, In those times of darkness, that's what the night is, isn't it? Times of darkness. Times when the holiness of God does not seem evident. Times when the justice of God does not seem to be thundering forth and His righteousness doesn't seem to be running as streams uh, of river. and, And it seems as though God isn't paying attention. Those are times to remember God's holiness. To remember that this is the very God that thundered from Sinai. To remember that this is the very God that destroyed the world in a flood. To remember that this is the very God that rained fire and brimstone down upon Sodom and Gomorrah. To remember that this is the God to whom vengeance belongeth. And to remember that this is the God who said to Israel, and can I say this, I understand there's a difference between the church and Israel. I'm a dispensationalist through and through. But I'm also aware that you and I, though we may be wild vines, we've been grafted into those promises. And just as Israel is the apple of His eye, I think in a sense you and I, as we've been born again, we're also the apple of His eye. And just as God has taken up for Israel, I believe He'll take up for all those that are righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. So He speaks of the comfort of God's goodness. In those darkest of nights, and times when it seems as though God isn't paying attention, just remember that the night only lasts for a little while. Uh, God created the light and darkness and separated them. And He called the morning the first day. He didn't call the darkness the first night. He called the morning. You know what that means? That means the light is preeminent above the darkness. That means that it's not one long night separated by a few days. It's one long day separated by a few nights. One of these days when things are set right, there'll be no more night there, and there'll be no more darkness there, and there'll be no sun there, but the Lamb will be the light. And there's coming a day of eternal day where we will not have to endure these things. We see the comfort of God's goodness. But now let me say a word in the next few verses about the correction of God's goodness. Or can I say it this way? David begins to speak about the remedy that God uses His goodness for. As you read verse number 6 and verse number 7, the first part of it, it's easy to believe that these are tones of praise. And I believe in a sense that they are. But it's easy to see them in a positive light. David says, and in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by thy favor, thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. And yet look at the next phrase. He said, thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. So say, preacher, what is David talking about here? Well, I think the key is found in the next verse. He tells what this did. In his life, this instance, and we'll talk about it in a moment. But he said, I cried to thee, O Lord, and unto the Lord I made my supplication. You say, preacher, there's times when I go through a difficult time. Is God trying to do something? Let me answer scripturally by saying yes. God's always trying to do. If you know the Lord, God's always trying to do something in your life. God doesn't ever give up on us and God doesn't ever lose interest in us. And David says, I came to a time in my life, a moment of prosperity, and I said, I shall never be moved. That's a dangerous thing to say, isn't it? I shall never be moved. It's one thing to say that, that the Lord shall never be moved. It's one thing to say that the righteous shall never be moved. It's one thing to say that Israel shall never be moved. But it's a whole other thing to say, I shall never be moved. He goes on to explain it in verse number seven, where he says, Lord, by thy favor, thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem was David's mountain. David had went in and and, and conquered the Jebusites and ran them out of Jerusalem. And then he built his kingdom there, his, his palace there. And the name was changed to Jerusalem, the place of peace. And David is referring to Jerusalem when he says, my mountain. And he says, here in this stronghold, I knew I would never be moved. Here in this stronghold, I knew nothing could touch me. And then what happened? We see that the assault didn't come from within and it didn't come from without. It came from above. Above because the lord hides his face from david and he says i was troubled can i tell you something about the goodness of god it's just that it's the goodness of god it's not your goodness it's not my goodness every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above doesn't come from me doesn't come from you comes from the father of lights with whom is no variableness neither shadow of turning he's good all the time isn't that true But we find that there came a time in David's life where God hid his face from David. Why was that? David exalted in pride. He just assumed that he could never be moved. And God reminded him of this. David, it's only because my favor is upon you. Look back a little earlier in verse number 5. David says, his anger endureth but a moment, in his favor is life. You know what that, that word favor means, don't you? I mean, we, we understand it means uh, to, to be in the good graces of someone. And yet, we're always in the good graces of God if we're in Jesus Christ. Can I give you another biblical word that is inseparably connected with the word favor? Can I give you the word countenance? The word countenance reflects the idea of God's face. God looking upon us in favor and in grace and letting the light of His countenance shine upon us. David says this, In my pride I said I'd never be moved. And God won't look on pride. So He turned away. And in that moment, trouble returned into my life. In that moment, I was unsettled. In that moment, all of that security I thought I had. In that moment, the the, the great geographical boundaries of Jerusalem meant nothing. In that moment, the city walls meant nothing. In that moment, all the armies that I could amass meant nothing. When God turned His face away, there was a trouble that came to the inside of me and not to the outside. And David is reminded of this, that the only reason that there's any goodness in his life is because it's the goodness of God. Let me tell you something. The only reason that you've got food in your refrigerator is because God blessed you with it. The only reason you've got gasoline in that vehicle is because God blessed you for it. The only reason that you've got the health that you had to walk through the doors is because God blessed you with it. And don't ever get prideful in thinking it's something you've done. And don't ever think that it couldn't be took away in a moment. Let me tell you something. We don't serve God because we fear Him. I, I'm aware that. I, I'm aware that perfect love casteth out fear. But I do know this: if we had a good, healthy, godly reverence and an understanding that the only reason that our life is not in pieces is because God holds it together, that by Him all things consist. The book of Colossians says it doesn't just say by Him all things in creation consist. It says by Him all things consist. You know what that word consist means? means to hold together. In other words, the thing that keeps the, the sun spinning is the Lord. The thing that keeps the birds flying is the Lord. The thing that keeps oxygen in our atmosphere is the Lord. But let me also say this, the thing that keeps your body functioning is the Lord. The thing that keeps the blessing of God in your life is God. The thing that keeps your mind strong enough to think is the Lord. It's by him all things consist. David, all of a sudden, God has used his goodness to correct him, because what does David do? In verse number eight, he says, I cried to thee, O Lord, and unto the Lord I made my supplication. In other words, I was exalted in pride God turned His face and humbled me, and now I have been humbled and I seek Him in prayer. Sometimes when the Lord removes His goodness from our life, it's not because God's not good anymore. Let me tell you something, and I'm going to try to say this right by the help of the Lord. God's always good in, in, in your life and in mine. You understand that? Now, I, I really want you to understand what I'm saying. God's always good. He said, but preacher, I got sick. Then that was the goodness of God. Could I say this? There's such thing as the greater goodness of God. It'd, be God. it'd be good if God didn't allow you to get sick. Somebody say amen right there. But sometimes it's the greater good when he draws you closer to himself through the sickness. Sometimes what we're getting a dose of, we're never getting a dose of the badness of God. Because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Sometimes what we're getting is a dose of the greater goodness of God that we can't understand. David had always been getting the goodness of God. But now he gets a little dose of the greater goodness, a goodness that that surpasses what he would want, a goodness that surpasses what he can expect and what he can understand. And God begins to do things in his life that he can't see and he can't understand. But at the end of the matter, he finds himself closer to God let me say this, that any time you're closer to God, you've received the greatest goodness, the greatest goodness. Let me give a quick word in closing about the consequence of God's goodness. Or could I say it this way? He begins by rehearsing the goodness of God. Then he speaks about the remembrance of God's goodness. Then he speaks about the remedy that God's goodness can give us in our life. But finally, he speaks about the result of God's goodness. And there's a little phrase that I want to zero in on in the next four verses. He says in verse number 9, What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Shall the dust praise thee? Shall it declare thy truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy upon me. Lord, be thou my helper. Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. Now. What is the next three words? To the end, that my glory may sing praise to thee and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. He sort of summarizes all that God has done for him. And he begins by asking this question Is there any profit in my blood when it goes down to the ground? We have a God, our God is not a God of human sacrifices. You understand that? When Christ died on Calvary, He was not dying as a human sacrifice. He was dying as a divine substitute. <laughs> he wasn't just dying to appease a bloodthirsty God, because God's not a bloodthirsty God. He was dying as our divine substitute. We deserved to die punitively upon that cross, and He died in our place, the vicarious substitutionary death that you and I could not die. David says, I know that God wouldn't be pleased with my dying. I understand that my blood would hold no sort of sick and sadistic profit to God. And so God should keep me alive, right? He says in the next phrase, shall the dust praise thee? Shall it declare thy truth? You know what David is saying is this. As long as I'm praising God, I'm worth more to him alive than I am dead. You say, preacher, that's a cold, calculated way to look at it. No, David is tapping into a basic elemental truth about human existence. And that elemental truth is this. We exist for one singular purpose. To the end of what? What's the purpose? He goes on to talk about all the Lord... Has done that the Lord is His helper and that the Lord has turned His mourning into dancing and and that the Lord has helped Him to put off sackcloth and and to be girded with gladness. And David says, I begin to understand this as I sit here upon this throne, as I sit here in this city, as I see the will of God being established and accomplished in my life, I begin to understand that it was all for one express purpose. It was not for my comfort. It was not for my joy. It wasn't, listen, it wasn't for the Jew and it wasn't for the Gentiles it wasn't for America, it wasn't for any of these things. The whole reason that God has looked on mankind is for His own glory and His praise. That's what it's all about. A lot of times people get confused. I won't say a lot about this, but I think it needs to be said. There's a lot of evangelism at all costs in the world we live in today. And, you know, Paul said, I am become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. But if you see the context of what Paul is talking about, he's not talking about compromising the Word of God. He's talking about discarding cultural preferences. There's a lot of things that we attribute to cultural preferences that are really the standards of the Word of God. So Paul is not saying that I discard holy living. I discard standards. I discard being separated from the world. I discard being true to the Lord, that I might save some. The book of Ephesians makes it abundantly clear when it says that you and I, uh, that the reason we have been created, the reason we exist is to be to the praise of His glory. Say, preacher, do you believe in evangelism at all costs? I don't believe in evangelism at the cost of the glory of God. Your chief purpose in being here tonight, I've heard some people say, well, the reason we're here is to win people to Jesus. No, the job we have to do while we're here is to win people to Jesus. The reason that you're here is to bring glory to God. Now, we can get in the ditch on either side of this. I, I understand that. And I, I wouldn't say anything that would make you less soul-conscious. You know that. I think we ought to be about winning people to Jesus Christ. And I think there's a lot of nonsense we allow to hinder us from winning people to Jesus Christ. But if you get mixed around on this, you know what you'll do? You'll start having, bar, uh, having churches in bars. You'll start allowing the the music of the world to find its way into the house of God. You'll take all of those things that make us a peculiar and zealous people and throw them out the window for the purpose of larger crowds and more flashy attendance records. And you know what the great tragedy is? Is this, you'll displease the Lord. Because the chief purpose in your existence is not to have a big ministry, not to have a bunch of notches in your belt, not to have a bunch of people that applaud at your name. The chief purpose is that we live to be for the glory of God. Everything that's happened in your life, and I'm reminded, and I'll close with this, of what was said about the death of Lazarus. Lazarus had died. There's no question about that. In fact, the Bible goes to extra lengths to make us understand that Lazarus had died. The disciples said, if he's sleeping, why doesn't someone awake him? And the Lord said, no, (laughs) dummy, he's dead. He's dead. But then he said this, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. I said, preacher, I don't understand what I'm going through. Well, no one expects you to. Just understand this, that everything God does in our lives, he does for his own glory. It's not about your comfort, although I found this, I'm more comfortable serving God than I am doing anything else. Somebody say amen to that. It's not so that we can have a big bank account, although let me say this, God's been better to me than I could have ever been to myself. What it's ultimately about is bringing God glory in your life. If you're not glorifying God through your actions and attitude and appearance and and the things that you do and the way that you behave, then you're defeating the purpose for which you draw breath. You're robbing God of that sacred right and responsibility that He bestowed upon you when He let the breath of life enter into you. That's the chief purpose in you being here is to glorify God. So here's the question I'd have. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Do you believe you're bringing glory to God? God's been awful good to you if you're saved, and I know that because He's been awful good to me. So I wonder this, is He getting what He paid for? Is there a good return on the investment He's making in your life? Are you bringing glory to Him? Do you tell the story of what God's done for you? I believe everybody that's saved has a story to tell, don't you? Of what God's done for them. Are you glorifying God? You say, oh yeah, preacher, we're here in church. I'm no, I'm not talking about in church. Talking about at your workplace, are you glorifying God? Talking about amongst your family, are you glorifying God? Do you tell them about what God's done for you? Talking about amongst your neighbors, do you share with them what God's done in your life? You see, that's why we're here. We're here to bring glory to Him, that we might be found under the praise of His glory. Let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes as the musician slips to the piano. I I don't know what God may have spoken to you about tonight, But I I do want you to respond to Him. Inasmuch as He's dealt with you, I want you to deal with Him. And some are already coming, and you're welcome to come now. You don't have to wait for the first note to be played or for the prayer to be prayed. If God's spoken to your heart, I want you to slip out of your seat, even right now, and come and speak to Him and deal with Him.